You are listening to the AI Ready Healthcare podcast. I'm your host Anirban. I lead a research group in Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany where we translate AI solutions to problems in image guided diagnosis and surgery. The purpose of this podcast is to connect the physician scientists and healthcare professionals with the advanced AI research from the Mikai Society. Here I talk to fellow scientists from both communities about the translational aspects of AI in healthcare. Opinion is whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together, let's make healthcare AI ready. I ask Grandpa, why is your face so wrinkly? Mom hushes me with arrows from her eyes. Grandpa hushes her, raises my hand to his forehead. You write poems with pencil on paper. I write poems with years on my face. His hand over mine. Grandpa reads his forehead like braille. My parents were poor but happy. He reads his cheeks. The warriors made me a man. He reads his chin. I will always love grandma. I touch the corners of his eyes and read every smile, every joke as lines of poems of laughters fly to grandpa's temples like shooting stars. You were listening to Face Poem by Amy Ludwig van der Water. Now we move on to today's episode on AI Ready Healthcare. It's a wonderful day here in Darmstadt. We are back again with the AI Ready Healthcare podcast. This is the second season of the podcast. I'm really, really happy to have here Mikhail Rosen Tzvi from Haifa, Israel. She is our guest today where we will hear from her about her experience in leading the healthcare informatics research in IBM. And also we will talk towards the second part of the podcast, this particular research that she has led to about the role of AI in the imaging parts of COVID-19, the promises and then the sort of heartbreaks, the failures, what can we learn? How can we move beyond from there? So yeah, this is really a wonderful day to be talking about these many different aspects, which are very interesting for our listeners. I also have with me my co-host, Henry. Hi. uh, Yeah, I'm Henry. I'm a research assistant in Anivan's laboratory, and I will be co-hosting today's session. Wonderful. And then, of course, welcome, Mikhail, to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks a lot for inviting me, Anirban. I'm happy to be here. 
in this sunny day in Israel. <laughs> yeah, we're really looking forward to today's session. So usually we're starting our podcast sessions with a quick piece of introduction where we learn about the stages and the career of each of our guests. So I would like to ask you about how you started as a researcher and how you became what you currently are as a research director at IBM. Thanks for the question. And actually, when I grew up, my father was a, P, um, a doctor of physician pediatrics and my mom a teacher. And I sort of wanted to be both of them. They were had a great role in my life. And I was like wanting to be a physician and wanting to be a teacher. And I was thinking about that, knowing that I can't really uh, see blood or enter a syringe or do anything like that. I decided to go to the teacher part and I went to study physics because I really liked physics and I studied under the, the first degree in Israel. And then I realized people were approaching me that if I do my master degree or if I go to teach, it's the same salary. So I was like, let's delay it. I get a scholarship and I continue to learn and I can be a teacher later. So I did my master degree and then similarly PhD, we get good scholarships in Israel and I was teaching was not paying well. So I was like, why should I start work? I can, can continue to enjoy learning. So I continued in, in physics. But then when I finished, I was already so engaged with research that I wanted to continue expand my horizons. And then I moved to the US to do postdoctoral studies at UC Berkeley and then at UC Irvine in machine learning. That seemed to me, and at that point, it was the beginning of the hype of machine learning. So it seemed like the right place to be. And from my perspective at that point, it seemed like a way to understand the brain. So it was like getting closer to understanding the biology and the physics of the body and learning more about how systems behave from learning approach, how systems learn from the how the brain learn and was related in some way also to my PhD thesis. So I did postdoctoral studies in machine learning. And when I came back to Israel, I, I joined again the Hebrew University as a a postdoc. And then I joined IBM Research because it seemed to me a very good place to combine research activities and challenging projects with the opportunity to continue being active in the academia because it's a research organization. I feel very blessed because today I'm doing both. I'm teaching at the university. I'm visiting professor at the Hebrew University. And I'm also doing some things like physicians, but without touching the patient, just looking at their data. So I feel that I really fulfilled what I wanted to do when I was really young and never knew about machine learning or anything like that. Wonderful. So I guess what was really interesting, you said that you have a family background of physicians, then you took, so that's more of the human body, the biology, anatomy, and then you took physics, and that means you are probably quite well knowledgeable, like you have a lot of background in the image acquisition, so MR physics, CT, all this stuff. And then you move towards the machine learning part, which is the analysis. So we don't find too many people who has like ticked all three boxes. That's really a rare thing. So how did that help you when you became the research director of healthcare informatics in, in IBM? I think the most important part in having a good career is the passion that you have to what you are doing without that it doesn't work. And I do remember the first class in undergrad when we learned about acoustic waves and I brought the 
picture of my daughter back then I was pregnant so it was really the ultrasound that was taken and I try to understand what I see that from the perspective of the physics of the waves getting into the body getting out of the body so I think the passion is the key element and I, I have this passion to understand the world and when I learn the physics of the machines and then trying to understand the data the machines generate and how this links to the physics it helps. It's not always that I can connect the dots end to end and have the full story clear in my mind. No, I wish, but it's not the case. But having more and more idea of what's happening there, helping to design the right algorithms and study. And of course, having the right partners. So it's also about the jargon and the language and being, being able to connect to experts in different areas. We collaborate a lot with physicians, with biologists, with technicians who work with us. And being multidisciplinary means that you understand the language of other people. You don't necessarily have the expertise of everybody. Yeah, that's actually a common recurrent theme in the podcast that those who really shine and they are really a senior in the career doing well all talk about the interdisciplinary approach of really going out of their way and learning the vocabulary of the other fields. I guess this is something that nobody teaches you, right? You learn on the job. There are no university course that teach you this, this, and this, and you are done. So I guess when you were a postdoctoral researcher in US, and then when you came back and suddenly you started leading an industrial research lab. So how was that transition? How difficult was that? It was, to me, a very educational experience to see how different it is from being in the university where the professors are solo leaders. So they have their own group. They are the head of the group. And while, you know, good professors encourage the people to think and everybody has their opinion. But at the end, at the bottom line, it's one person who is leading and a lot of students who work with them. In the industry world and in IBM research, we have these metrics organizations where we want to be able to work and contribute on different fronts. And we have large teams and sometimes we uh, engage everybody against a single task and sometimes there are multiple tasks and we work in this very diverse environment. And the objective function is much more complex So in, in research. So if you think about the university, often the, the professors want you to have as many papers as possible. And that seems to be, at least it, it gets the feeling that that's, the ultimate goal, and that's what you want to achieve. While at IBM, we have the wish to make an impact on society in many different ways. So we put a lot of effort in opening code, sharing open source code, opening data, of course, making an impact on the business. So there are business units that we want to influence. And also we want to be a strong player in the community environment and to make an impact through publication. So it's more complex. And at the same time, I feel it much more appealing. But that's, you know, your, the taste. Everybody has their own taste. Oh, that's really wonderful. Yeah, I think you are absolutely right in the sense that university environment typically is sort of like a pyramid where at the top there are these group leaders or 
professors, however you want to call them, but they basically decide the research agenda, maybe sometimes based on the grants also, what they are getting out that decides. I guess when you move to IBM, that was relatively more open-ended, right? Of course, there are some guidelines about the research agenda, but it's still, you can do more because of the employees that you have. They are not necessarily like PhDs, three years down the line, they have to graduate. So once you have this sort of, how to say, the horizon is a little bit far away, pushed off, and then they don't have to have these N number of papers to graduate, how that really helps you in deciding the research agenda? So we aim far and high and we try to make big changes in the world. I can give one example of a project that was nurtured in my lab and grew very well. And I was uh, highly involved in the very first steps. And that's the debater project. The debater project is based on AI on text. And the aim is to create technology that can argue with humans and can provide convincing arguments. So this is putting a very long-term, very challenging and ambitious project. And you can make such a thing if you have the opportunity, as you said, as we have in research, to look beyond the immediate paper. I mean, at the end, the team who worked on the debater published in Nature this year and were on the cover of Nature. So it's not like that they don't want to have publications, but they have the patience and the ability to build step and, and on top and step layer by layer until you get very strong technology and not to run for this is the immediate paper that I need to get within a year or two. Yeah, this is actually a good point, right? That if you are really aiming high and if you are successful, then of course you get a massive paper, like as you said, nature, but it's also probably the case there are not much competition because the problem is so difficult and it's such a long term that there are not many who even has the resource to actually go for it. So we want to think about that also as like showing the way to others. I believe that IBM had this winning the chess game more than 20 years ago against Kasparov. I think that today it's not such a high bar. Many companies can create a technology that will help winning the, the world champion in, in chess. But at that time, we showed that it's possible and then it become much easier to many others to follow. And these are the significant moments in the history of AI that we are trying to shift and to move the boundaries further and further while thinking about the rest. So it's while publishing and sharing at times code and at times the, the data that we have, some data of the debate was shared in some way. So we want to open that to the rest of the community to follow. When I'm thinking about really the big changes of AI, and especially for your case and also for our listeners, the AI and healthcare. So we were, as a community, let's say Mikai, we were using different forms of machine learning. So support vector machines, then came the random forest, then came the sparse representation, dictionary learning. And then suddenly this big breakthrough of deep learning and CNN and suddenly Mikai became more or less an AI conference, right? And you have, let's say, lived through that entire phase while working in the IBM. So how was that experience for you? It was a wonderful experience because I think that showing that AI technologies can provide value in understanding medical images was a big challenge. 
that many teams put as a goal to prove that they can make it happen. I think that uh, IBM was talking about it among the very early adapters, the very early teams who started to talk about the potential of AI in imaging. And you can see that within research, we have created a line of work. In my team, it was on breast imaging. And in California, it was about chest imaging. And you can see very impressive results that were shared that we published in Radiology in 2019, a paper that shows that when you combine clinical data with imaging data, you can reach the levels of radiologists in early detecting of cancer in screening mammography breast data and breast mammography imaging. And this paper, by the way, was selected in RSNA as one of the best papers of that year in, in radiology because of the ability to link between clinical history and images. So I think that Mikai has matured into usage of deep learning, development of novel deep learning technologies for medical images. And we've seen that happening and we were very happy to participate and take active role. IBM researchers have organized workshops in the past and this year we are organizing a couple of workshops, one on multimodal analysis and one on long-term COVID, AI support to understand long-term COVID. And I think that this is... um, Mutual relationships. We learned a lot from what happens in Mika. We contributed and we think it's a very important society and opportunity to share results. Maybe while we're at the topic of COVID, I think we might switch to uh, the second block of our podcast about AI research for uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, especially using medical imaging. So I have here this very paper of your research group, basically uh, a review of different approaches to using artificial intelligence, medical imaging for diagnosis and also prediction. So what are the basic claims of this paper? Okay, so I think we have three basic claims. First is that there's a big increase in investment in AI for medical imaging and that this was further accelerated during the pandemic. So just in in numbers, so that's claim number one about the attention that was drawn to these technologies and the usage within the community was much higher than at least I expected. So if you look at numbers, we saw that in the papers that we reviewed in a very initial analysis in 2019, there were an order of 55,000 papers on medical imaging and 2,500 of them were AI on medical imaging. While in 2020, the number of papers in general grew, so from 55,000 to almost 68,000, but the growth in investment in AI was much more significant, more than doubled. So from 2,500 to 5,400 papers on AI. And then in this very initial analysis, we found that 827 papers were devoted specifically to AI on COVID. So the first claim was the, the big increase in uh, interest of in AI during the pandemic. In our paper, we reviewed only 463 papers because after looking at the 827 that were found originally, we wanted to remove papers that were a review paper or papers that uh, didn't really propose novel AI technologies. And we wanted to focus on those that are proposing AI technologies at the core of the paper. So this was the first thing, a huge increase in the number of papers and in general in AI and medical imaging and a significant 
jump in AI in medical imaging on COVID that we see with uh, originally 800 and in order of 500 of 463 papers that we reviewed. The second was the gap. So we saw a gap in terms of the interest between clinical papers and AI papers. Clinical papers were focused on CT, like 83, 84% of the papers were talking about CT images of COVID patients and the X-ray was only 10% of the total papers. The total was in order of 2,500. And in AI, the division was very different. So it was half of them almost on X-ray and the rest on CT and ultrasound, some on multimodal. And this gap is not yet too surprising because we all know that when you work on AI papers, you need to have access to data and X-ray is much more abandoned. So it's not surprising that the clinical papers that focus on research, they want to see with higher resolution, they look at CT, while the uh, research on AI requires large quantities of data, so they focus on X-ray. That was somewhat expected. But the third message that was much more surprising to us was the message regarding the maturity of the papers. You might think that it makes sense, but we rank the papers on their maturity based on different elements, like the size of the data that was accumulated to uh, study the AI technology, uh, the linkage to some clinical use case, whether this is peer-reviewed paper or archive paper. And we've seen a behavior that when in a second thought makes sense, but in the first thought was alarming. And that was that based on our analysis of AI experts who gathered together in order to uh, look at these papers, and we had clinicians from many different centers in US, UK, and Israel to talk with us in, as authors of this paper to review indeed the relevance to clinic, we found that the number of papers that were mature was very low. High maturity were 12 papers according to our assessment. And indeed, vast majority of the papers addressed the task that the American Medical Association was against. So the task that most of the papers addressed was diagnosis of COVID. But the American Radiology Association was talking about don't use images to diagnose the patients. You can use the images to track the patients, to assess prognosis, but not for diagnosis, for many reasons. You don't want to contaminate the area with where you have the machines. It's not so definite that you want to do it instead of the PCR that is so abandoned for many different reasons. So that was somewhat surprising that there are not a large number of maturity papers and that the papers focused in areas that from the beginning, diagnostics is irrelevant for the clinical tasks where the technology is needed. That was the first thought. The second thought makes it clearer why it happened, because at the end, we know to create a very good technology, AI technology on medical imaging, we all know it requires benchmarking and cleansing of the data. And to make it useful, you want to close the loop. And, and we think about it. So what we want to do, it's some kind of a scientific discovery. So we think about it like the way uh, Sir Francis Bacon was describing the scientific method. There's a question, you come up with a study, you generate a hypothesis, you test it, and then you evaluate it. That's the discovery-driven approach. But within the discovery-driven approach, it's not sufficient just to ask a question and to make a study. You want to come up with an hypothesis. This model might be of value to radiologists to assess the hypothesis 
and then to test and, and see its value and close the cycle as quickly as possible in order to benefit from the technology. And the health systems were not ready for that. And the burden of the pandemic on the health system made it very hard, almost impossible to collaborate and change that during the pandemic. Now we have the opportunity to change that. Wonderful. So this is really a paper that I was really looking forward to. The name of the paper is on the role of artificial intelligence in medical imaging of COVID-19. I think this came out in BMJ Patterns. So I, of course, suggest all of our listeners who are interested in COVID-19 and AI in COVID-19 medical imaging, you should really read it. And the paper is fascinating on many different aspects. We, of course, like you mentioned, the three big things. But before we go into the, I mean, I have many questions on many levels, but before we go into the details of it, I I mean, what was really interesting for me was how you thought of taking papers and putting one maturity score, because this is not something like I think at the start of the talk, like at the start of this podcast session, you were talking about the transition from academia to research in industry. And probably this helped you in this sort of indexing, because this is not something which academics do. I mean, we compare state-of-the-art report, and whenever we get 2% better on whatever, we write another paper. And we, we don't think of maturity index. So can you tell the process of how you reach to this? Yeah, so this was an interesting uh, effort. Of course, we all went through all the phases. So luckily, we now live in Israel without feeling any COVID. The vaccines worked well. The number of severe cases dropped significantly. Almost no confirmed cases. So it's hard to remember the first days when the pandemic outbreak, the feeling was that everybody wants to help, but so much is unknown that you want to try and understand what can be done. And we brainstormed between different teams within Israel and with colleagues from research labs in IBM research labs in Zurich and Almaden. We talked on a regular basis, much more than we talked before the pandemic, because we wanted to share our concern that something is happening. We would like to help. We would like to make a difference. We would like to find a way to assist. And we have a set of tools that we can leverage do they fit? Are they in the right place at the right time? Do, is now the time to use that? And we looked into different efforts that we can launch. And uh, one of these was on the area of AI for the radiology, to assist radiologists. This was one track that we looked at from many different angles. We came up with the idea of even looking back at the chest images and seeing if there were with AI technology, if there were people with the virus before we know it. So I don't know if you remember in April, March, everybody was talking that it started only in 20, at the very late of 2019, but maybe earlier, maybe the circles of all the cycles, the chains of infections were earlier in the country, in Israel or elsewhere. How can we find it? So maybe we can go back to images and look at them. Does it make sense to diverge our efforts in order to collect that and do diagnosis. And then came the ACR guidance of don't do diagnosis on, on imaging. So we are not going to have a lot of examples of diagnosis with imaging because ACR objected. So we had all of these many questions in the air. One of the questions, uh, like the direction, another direction we took all the technology and colleagues uh, at IBM into creating a data set for 
non-pharmaceutical interventions using AI to analyze Wikipedia so that we can extract information. This is now published in Nature Scientific Data. The, we call it WinTrack. So tracking the intervention so that you can analyze the connection between the intervention to other things seem to be important. So we, we moved there because we felt that not enough, the scientific method is not enough to use. You can't really start arguing politically about interventions without being able to analyze that. So you need to have a structured data to compile that. So we had these pockets of activities and in the pocket of activity of AI for imaging, this pocket was the most fast, frustrating. Does it make sense to diverge the attention of radiologists? We did have within IBM access to some data. What can be seen? How you labeled it? Does it make sense to start and do the whole process of cleansing that we typically do in order to get high quality result? And then we started to see papers popping up one after the other. And we started to get confused ourselves. Are these good papers? Should we start read everything? Should we filter them, rank them? How can we, we want to assist. We want to come up with our technologies to the community and, and provide some some remedy to this unbelievable pandemic that uh, so many people are suffering from. But even just reading the paper, we found it as a very daunting task. And that's where we decided as a team, being such a big team, let's for ourselves do some, some order in the mess. Let's understand this jungle of papers. And then we thought, why, why only for us? Probably a lot of researchers are asking the very same questions what's useful, what's not, how you can organize it, what elements you have into it. And that's how we reached to the conclusion that we would like to allocate some of our time that we in any event allocating. We, we wanted to understand what's available and is it useful. So let's do it in an organized fashion and use AI technologies to crawl the literature papers, to organize them by topics and then do the organized review. So let's use that. And we actually made available, I think the Excel file with all the papers are available on our website. So everybody can now repeat, criticize, do whatever they want with what we've found. Wonderful. So I guess one of the striking things is sort of you came up with the criteria, right? So on these five or so points, we will measure the maturity and then from there we will do then an aggregation. So how do you come to those five or so points? That was challenging. And we had back and forth and we actually did it once in an earlier version that we uploaded and submitted somewhere. And then we did it again from the beginning because we felt it's not rigor enough. So we thought, what should be the criteria for maturity? Should it be the AI models, how advanced they are in state of the art? How big the data is? Is it reproducible? So do you refer to, to results that seems to be very shaky? Does it link to the clinical and was it guided by clinical needs? So these were the things we, we thought of value. We were very hesitant about the citation element. So citation originally seemed to be a good criteria. Why not? I mean, if a lot of researchers found it relevant, it seems that it should mean it's mature. But then we decided to ignore that, the citations, and to use it as an external way to corroborate or criticize what we did. Because we found out that a lot of papers just attracted attention by the mere fact that they talked about COVID and AI and analyzing radiology papers early on. They were published very early. 
So everybody was referring to them. Does that mean that it's mature? Does it mean... So that actually goes back to the questions you asked me in the very first section about doing research when you want to achieve results as quickly as possible, but then you pay by not being so thorough and so careful versus taking the time and, and do the lengthy process. And we don't know, people are, all have their own way to balance between this, but we, we thought that citations, it's not a clear way to show that the balance is at the right place. That's why we ignore that. Yeah, actually, I found the maturity score very graspable and it seems like a very efficient thing because it uh, considers these particular factors. So I think it might even be applicable to technologies outside of the world of the research communities. So I was asking myself, who could benefit from the maturity score as a stakeholder? I mean, if such a thing is established for a particular research field. Henry, that's a very good point that I actually didn't think about extension and going beyond. That's a very good point. We do think about ways we can do things automatically. And what we did with the maturity score was manual. So that's why it's not so easily going to scale up for us. Uh, we thought that for the pandemic and, and as I said, the feeling that we all want to work together. This was a very big team of people coming from a diverse organizations. We thought it was the time. But scaling it up requires automation. And automation, some of the code that crawl the data and use the keywords and so on, that has some very simple AI technologies on the text is open source and freely available and you can find it. That's easy. The maturity score, we are looking into it and there are many different ways nowadays to assess maturity. Some people talk about the number of tweets or how many times it was captured by the media or blogs. There are many different ways to do it. If you want to do it automatically, you want to quantify and scale up. We don't know that we have the right way to do it, but we, we do look into it. But thanks for your comment, Henry, because I didn't think about it from the perspective of the specific scores we created. I should think more about how to automate that. The automation is the key element here. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with Henry in the sense that if you are really thinking about the stakeholders, they would probably benefit way more than the, let's say, competition, because competitions are trying to beat each other, be it paper or technology itself. But those who are going to be using it for them, this is a really nice indicator. I mean, there are some of these or buying AI products, there are these clear guidelines and stuff like that, but that's probably just one stop in the sense that you still have to go through the entire process. But if you can come up with a solution and people can sort of go through that, that would be really wonderful. So I was just thinking like what was very interesting for me is the first point you mentioned. And for me also, it was kind of relevant that when you look at the clinical papers of AI um, image, medical imaging in COVID-19, you were roughly like 83% of it is CT. And yes. then you look at the AI papers, that's 38%. So that's a funny flip, not in the right side. So was that the first thing that really concerned you? Or was there some, because something like you smelled fishy things, right? It's not suddenly you embark into a project. So what went wrong? Yeah, I think that's a valid point about this gap. As I said, I think that the gap has to do also with the different angles that the teams come from. So if you want to review with higher resolution 
an image, you need a CT. If you want to look at large population, you probably need X-ray because you won't get large population from CT. Not so many COVID-19 patients had CT exams. But then one of the things that started to work well but didn't benefit full-blown from the opportunity is the partnerships, sharing data. So making the data available is something that if we had much bigger consortiums, we could have seen a larger cohort of CT images and we could have analyzed them. If you only have partners from one or two health systems, then the number of CT is not sufficient, then you restrict yourself to X-ray. So this is like practicalities issues that drive the research. And, and it's funny when you, you do statistics on a large number of papers, as you said, then you see it so clearly. Before that, it's just an intuition or feeling. So I totally agree with that. I would like also to go back to your comment, uh, Anirban, on the competitions versus the review meta-analysis part. This, I think, links to what Henry mentioned about having a consistent way to assess the maturity of papers. I don't know if competition is the right word for it, but I think that some way to benchmark, not competitions because competitions have their drawbacks, but ways to benchmark. So if you have technology that says, this is open data, and that's the three measures that we are using in order to assess technology, and that's what we achieved. Now you can take your own data and test for yourself what do you achieve on your own data. Now to be able to benchmark, you want to have the data organized in the same way, cleansed in the same way, the measurements, the metric being assessed in the same way. For that reason, we are looking into open sourcing code that will enable benchmarking. And we think that this is very important. It's not competitions. As you said, in competitions, People sometimes forget the goal, which is to assist the clinicians, the community with good technology and focus on the specific task of the competition. I don't know if that's beneficial for us as a community who wants to benefit, but tools for benchmarking and creating a community that enables sharing data and sharing source code, I think that's very useful. And I think that's a direction that the world is moving towards and we at IBM are looking at that. So maybe that's the answer of how we can generalize the metric is by having the code that enable comparisons and benchmarking. Yeah, that's a really good point, what you have made, that finally we are not fighting each other, but rather trying to reach a common goal. In a way, we are a big team altogether. So that's an excellent point you have made. I guess the other thing that you pointed at the start when you were summarizing is sort of the funny fact that I think can only happen if computer scientists are trying to do healthcare without understanding healthcare. It's simply that American College of Radiology said, don't do it. And then we exactly went on doing it and keep publishing papers. Like this is really unbelievable. And if I look at the paper, diagnosis takes like 70% of it, which American College of Radiology said, no, no. So yeah, can you describe a little bit more than the, in the details of that? Well, so that's a political question to some extent, because, and at some point we analyzed the paper based on where the authors come from and where the data come from. And very naturally, because the pandemic outbreak came from China, the first research studies came from China. The data and often the researchers, not always, sometimes uh, Chinese organizations share data with other organizations. Now, ACR does not apply to China. So the American College of Radiology 
it's American College of Radiology, and in China, I think for good reasons, because often the full hospital became a hospital for corona patients. You don't worry too much about contamination. It's not the same as having internal medicine with patients who are very um, at a very sensitive condition sitting next to you and you are using the same facility for radiology. If it's the whole hospital is hospital with COVID patients, it might make sense to use CTs. And we did see a lot of studies from China on diagnostics of COVID that compare the, this was also the very first days of the swab when you use that for the PCR test. And it wasn't that clear how accurate it is. You needed to establish capabilities there. So data was accumulated from CTs and it was in large quantities. And once it's in large quantities, AI teams are jumping on it and, and analyzing it. We know that's typically what happens. So I think if you want to make an impact, I mean, one message that we learned, if you want to make an impact, you want to assist your community, you want to do something that matters, keep in mind always what happens beyond the publication of a paper. And sometimes it's hard to see at the eye of the storm, you are at the beginning of the pandemic. It's hard to understand how it will serve. And sometimes it's easier, but if you think about what you are looking for that goes beyond the paper, the immediate publication, then probably more technology would have tied to useful use cases. I guess sort of a follow-up to that was basically we are also involved a sort of uh, Germany-wide consortia, uh, which we call Raccoon, so Radiology Cooperative Network, where we are also trying to do so all the 38 German university hospitals. Uh, we are doing sort of a federated way of understanding how the, uh, uh, like, based on the CTs of patients who are in ICU, how the COVID-19 is developing and different sort of markers there. And one thing that I always heard from our radiology colleagues is that they never even asked the questions like from the CT whether somebody has COVID-19 pneumonia or not. Like they capture CT kind of after that. So it was more about the patient management. So how long this particular person will keep the ICU occupied or who should receive the most attention in the coming days or coming hours. So that sort of question, I guess what you are saying makes more sense to answer those. But at the same time, the problem is also like you mentioned that how do we get such annotation? Because those annotations are much more difficult. So can you give us some uh, details of how to solve this problem? The annotation problem, yeah, which is very challenging, very challenging. So we developed at IBM research in California some technologies that analyze text that enable automatic extraction from the radiology summary uh, information about what do you see in the text. So we do the same for pathology and for radiology write-ups. And that's good to some extent. So it, it gives you a quick jump start so you can analyze and you know what was discussed. It's not, of course, 100% accurate, but I think that usage of the NLP on the pathology report, it's a very good start. Then you can do some validation process on the text. So instead of investing everything in human labeling and annotation, you can do it in that way. So this is like the straightforward, I believe, answer of what would be the solution. But 
the other element is the element that I shared before about opening data, opening code. So we could help each other to make much quicker progress in accelerating the, our discoveries through working in a community of discovery. And I think that we are heading that direction, but there's more to be done and to be said. Absolutely. I guess the name of the podcast AI ready healthcare and making healthcare AI ready. That's sort of all the right boxes sort of you are ticking now that these are the kind <laughs> of problems that is still out there. Henry, I guess you have some questions. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I have a final question, maybe as a closing question for today's session. Yeah, what are the overall recommendations you would give regarding the development of AI systems in the context of COVID-19 review? So I will share a point of view that I learned recently, and we shared it in IBM in what we call Science and Technology Outlook that we shared at the end of 2020, looking forward. And that point of view is a suggestion to think about our development in AI for imaging or for healthcare, to think about it from the point of view of discoveries. We are making discoveries and we want to accelerate them to make them as robust, as useful and accelerate them. And when we think about the process of creating a discovery, it always starts with some question. So you want to ask, can I assist radiologists in early detection of breast cancer in screening? Or can I assist radiologists in estimating prognosis of COVID-19 patient? So you have a question. Then comes the study. And often the study is so consuming that people are like, oh, I'm done with the study. Wonderful. But that's not the right way to look at it because it's, the study needs to lead you to a hypothesis. It, it's not ending there. The study, let's say, is, is you perform a lot of comparisons on retrospective patients' data. You come up with a model. You believe that this model is a good one to answer the question, to assist radiologists to early detect cancer. Now comes the real part of experimentation. Now you need to close the loop and find a way to put your technology to work in the field and to see that it's useful and beneficial and to do it in a cautious way to make sure that we don't waste the energies and the time of the physicians, to make sure that we don't drive the patients to the wrong direction. So make this uh, experimentation in very different ways. You can think about it like clinical trials in pharma. You first do safety, phase one, phase two, only then you do the efficacy to show the value. Similarly, you have a hypothesis. Think of a way that is safe and still useful to learn the benefit of the technology and just establish safety that you didn't harm the system. Then show efficacy. Then you can close the loop and say, I have a good discovery. I had a question and I finished and answered it well. I think that if we all remember that and put efforts in that direction, then the discoveries we'll make will be really useful for the society. That's really wonderful how you thought of saying that it's not really a one shot process, but it's rather you get the feedback from the first level and then you move on to the next level. But at the same time, it's also kind of interesting for us because we have seen how pharma has gone out from the university to the industry. I guess that way AI for healthcare will probably move out from the university academia itself. Maybe academia will develop the basic methods, but then the actual refinement and making it useful will come in the industry. And that's sort of a synergy, I guess, we are all really looking forward to in the longer run. 
So yeah, on that note, thank you so much for your time, Mikhail. This was really, really an enlightening one hour or so of discussion about this wonderful paper you have written. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. It was great talking to you. <laughs>